Every town in Ireland has some sort of cinema history. I'm not talking in any grand theoretical way about the evolution of film. What I mean by cinema history is that when a cinema opened in a town for the first time, or when visiting film projectionists set up their tents in a town field, they brought with them what seemed to be a new toy, but in fact turned out to be something much greater, something which formed a whole new culture. Mullingar's cinema history is similar to many other towns. It started as if it were a passing fad, but became very much part of the lives of what I would term the first real cinema generation. The generation who experienced all the major technical developments in cinema. The generation who formed the culture surrounding the picture house. The generation who were in the middle of the conflict between society as projected from the screen and society as shaped by Irish tradition. I suppose when you put it that way, who would have thought in Mullingar Mr Fitz was to be responsible for a cultural revolution? Fitzmaurice was a, was a t- typical showman and he had a very loud Dublin voice and he went around with handbills re- uh, religiously on a Saturday night for years and he'd be handing them out, bringing them into pubs and bringing them into shops and he was the character of the town, you know, and everybody would be watching him during the week. We kids, particularly coming to school, what's on a Sunday, Mr Fitz? But he used to operate uh, by shifting the machinery from the Coliseum uh, to the county hall. Now, that was quite a ritual. Mm. There were old uh, transformers and all sorts of equipment because that time there was no electricity in town, you know, and they had to have their own equipment. And they used to bring this huge transformer down the middle of the street every Sunday morning after the Saturday night performance. And uh, the whole town would be out looking at it going down the middle of the street and turning it at the market square on planks because it was big, heavy iron oh, wheels yeah. and it had no axle or anything at that time and pulling it off down the street down to the county hall. Of course, the the whole uh, the, the, the population nearly was fallen because they were keen interest in everything that was happening and what film was being shown and everything. It uh, used to be a tight schedule, but send the films used to be sent by bus and they'd be sent by train. And on, on occasions they get mixed up in the stations and they go to the wrong destination. You see, and the people that arrived down and the film wouldn't have arrived. You see, and they'd be charging me sitting inside and they'd be waiting for them and there'd be no film. And there used to be pandemonium. You see, but. <laughs> If he was fairly sure, poor old Fitz was fairly sure that the film was going to be in, you see. He used to, there was a, a great character and a great operator too called Bob Evers. Bob used to go out the back window of the county hall with an empty tin, you see. And he'd go up under the railway and he'd, he'd walk back down the town with a tin in his shoulder, you see. And everybody think the film had arrived. And, and uh, Fitzmaurice hoping and praying that it would. But to make sure that, he, that the people would turn up, this was one of the acts, you know. But, of course, everything was excitement. I mean, any, anything moving on the screen at all created an interest, you know. At that time, most of the films were continental and not American because of the fact that the films were silent, the language barrier didn't exist, and subtitles couldn't be read anyhow, even under good circumstances. And even, as you know now, people identified so much with them that every home in Mullingar had somebody in it called after a film star. George Raft and Rudolf Valentino and those sort of suave, sick, slick fellas, they gave, they gave rise to a whole population of local George Rafts in the dance halls. They would come in with their hair perfectly groomed, you see, and a black suit and a, and a white shirt sort of thing, patent leather shoes. But there were a few fellas, and strangely enough, in every town, there were a few fellas who played that role all their lives. No, the first sound film that ever 
ever hit Mullingar wasn't in any of the cinemas. It was in in the fair. It was in Rooney's Field, where the circus operator, from a, a, a crowd called Barry's Hippodrome, introduced the first talking film, the the Singing Fool, and it was shown in in Rooney's Field in in a tent. Uh, that would be around 1926 seven. Mm. That was the first talking film. But I remember, I remember particularly well in my younger years, um, going to the cinema, which was half talky and half, and half silent. What was that? Have, well, it, it was, of course, it was thrilling to us to get even a reel of sound. Yeah. But it was a kind of an experiment. At that time, they ran a disc for the sound, and the film had to synchronise with the disc. And they often got mixed up and cause enormous excitement and fun when, when the wrong disc would be applied for the wrong reel of film. And that happened not, a little more than often. Is it true what they say about Swanee? Is a dream by that stream so sublime? Do they laugh, do they love, like they do in every song? If it's true, that's where I belong. By 1933, showing films became a little less haphazard. Fitzmaurice was based in the county hall, and any time there wasn't dances or county council meetings, the cinema was set up. The demand was so great that it allowed another man called Tom Healy to open Mullingar's first permanent, almost purpose-built cinema called the Coliseum. It's remembered for its different doors for different prices. You paid fourpence or ninepence, and then you walked in to a, a yard that ran parallel to the cinema with the ninepenny door at the top and the fourpenny door at the bottom. And there, for many years, you were greeted by my father, but he only had one leg, and they used to call him Happy Healy. And he had a lot of Hopalong Cassidy. He had a sense of humour, I think, and he, he had a lot of Hopalong Cassidy movies. And the other thing he had, uh, when there'd be two fellas trying to get in for fourpence, there was a famous old uh, cowboy star at the time called George O'Brien. And he was well known for shouting, no two for fourpence to see the great George O'Brien. The fascination to me, of course, at that stage was that the fi film would stop after every reel, you see, and the lights would go on. And then, of course, when the lights would go off, then there'd be a colossal uh, cheer and everybody was so excited and it was cinema was the thing, you see. But um, the film itself had a distinctive smell and the sounds of the, of the pouring of the, of the uh, machine, machines operated, they, they operated for showing the films. And you'd hear that, if the film had started, you'd hear the, the sound of the voices and the musical background of the film and you'd hear the purr of the machines and uh, you'd get that complete uh, build-up of excitement uh, connected with the whole thing, you know, it was the, the important thing in your life to be going into the cinema, you know. Well, the, the, the Coliseum meant that there was a regular programme and uh, two or three changes a week. Usually what the, the programme consisted of a short, a full-length feature and a comic, or a serial. Now, the serial, The Perils of Pauline, was one of them. There, it was a, a most important feature, and... Actually, there was a lot more uh, attention paid to the serial than to the main feature. We were very conscious to that time of the, of the, um, the boxing thing because of Tony and the Irish connection of world heavyweights, and we were able to see fifteen round contests coming back on film. Some of them, some of them were hardy annuals. The same film would come up year after year. Fifteen round contests, Tony, Tony and Dempsey. We would keep, you know, it, it would never be played out. Everybody watched it. 
a syndicator or, or, or a, a business group in Dublin called Egan's Egan Film Service Limited uh, bought, took over the county hall and they renovated it and they made it a very modern looking place and uh, they appointed a manager called uh, Bert Weechie. In my early stages too, publicity was a very important thing. I mentioned that to you before about mm. Jimmy O'Dea and all that. But poor old Weechie uh, was very dignified, you see, and very likeable character. And he died here. He died of TB during my time, and it was very sad. He was quite young when I look back. He was a very young man when he died. But uh, poor old Weechie used to uh, pride in his, his little snippets he put in the paper. But one particular uh, sympathetic day time he put in special Paddy's Day programme. Uh, and the local examiner, you see, and there was pandemonium. They were writing letters for a month, the desecration of the of the of the name of 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 our of our feast day. You know, special. And he, I remember him coming in. I've never never saw him drunk until that particular time, and I remember him coming in crying, and he hardly able to stand up sitting at the seat, at the way the people had reacted, and he, and in all his innocence, he didn't think he was doing anything. The war years then came along. Ireland, now fully aroused to a sense of the danger facing her, is on guard. Since it's the small, comparatively weak neutral nations whom Hitler prefers to attack, Ireland may well be looking to her defences now that the Nazis have overrun France. Attacks from the air, even invasion from the air, must be regarded as a possible Nazi advance towards the main objective, which is Britain. Invoking the Public Safety Act, President de Valera bans Dublin's long-anticipated Blue Shirt Parade. Cork and Dublin were the finalists for the All-Ireland Hurling Championship. It was a good, hard game, and Cork fought stubbornly to notch their 13th victory by a margin of seven points. It's the handsome young Irish boy by the name of Jack Doyle that's after fighting for the glory of the Emerald Isle. And he trains for his big fight by singing of an Irish Colleen and himself in his gown all ready for a bath. She was lovely and fair as a rose in the summer Yet it was not her beauty alone that won me the moon through the valley her pale rays were shedding that made me love Mary the rose of Trally. Well, Jack, what do you think about it, boy? I feel very upset indeed. And it was all unintentional because it meant so much to me to win this fight. I've been looking forward to it for ever since I started boxing. And I... Uh, I'm very, very sorry, especially for all my people in Ireland that's been looking forward to me winning this fight and still like them over to see me. I hope to have the opportunity of meeting him again if they fight me. Well, Jack, what are you going to do now, boy? Well, I intend going over to Ireland to see my mother and dad and all my little brothers and sisters and have a look around and see all the Irish folks and say how do you do to them all. I'm sure you'll be all very sorry, but I know I'm very welcome over there anyhow. And you'll come back again and have another fight. Oh, yes, I'll have plenty. I'll never stop until I have the championship of the world. <laughs> That's right. That's right, Jack. That's the way. The 1940s brought several changes in Mullingar's awareness of film and cinema. One of the major events was the shooting of Frank Launder's Captain Boycott in 1946. Stars like Stuart Granger, Alistair Sim and Kathleen Ryan 
were all of a sudden living in the town, and those picked as extras went out to Mullingar Racetrack, two miles down the road, seeking fame and fortune. But why Mullingar? Well, the author of the book was a bank clerk in Mullingar called Philip Rooney, who was a personal friend of mine. He was married to uh, Myra Rainey uh, from Mullingar. And um, I had contacts that way. When they were making the film in Mullingar, I was responsible more or less for employing the people for the various rushes. Well, you, you went to the gate of... You cycled out, or you walked, to the, to the uh, racetrack. And uh, at the racetrack, there was uh, two or three people at the gate uh, there checking everybody going in. If you didn't have a costume, they would supply you with a costume. And the kind of costumes that were generally given like, to the people of the town consisted of uh, um, a jacket like... Uh, uh, was at one time worn in the Arden Islands, you know, a, a bonine type. Okay. <laughs> but a, a rough type of thing made out of canvas. It wasn't the real thing. It was very light. And uh, one of these carbine type hats. Percy Hermes. Now the name just comes to me now that I'm talking about him. Percy Hermes. Hermes, I think that was it. Uh, Percy, anyway. Um, and uh, he had a stick, and he did most of the organising of the people, and then was in the film himself as a kind of an extra, mm. but always shouting at everybody what to do, to advance down towards the railings and so on. Uh, not too many, summers of time, and so on. Whatever, whatever instructions he wanted to give. He probably got 10 shillings for a whole day, 12 hours maybe, out of the race course. You know? But the, the, the making of the Captain Boycott film uh, was like it could be, it will be, I suppose, written into the to, to the history of the country that it changed the psychology of the people, and to a great extent it did, because the whole town suddenly found themselves on a, a step or two above reality, f saturated with a, with the uh, with the cinema technique or the cinema aura sort of thing, and they never really got over it. Some of them, but they found it hard. But this was a common feature of anywhere that, that, that a, a film crew moved into. Yeah. So what, what happened? The crew moved in and... Well, the crew moved in and they, they brought a certain type of exotic life with them, late nights and that sort of thing, and they brought their own jargon. And they brought this sort of thing that people were exposed to stars for the first time. And... Uh, Stuart Granger now, for instance, you see, he was a star at the time, and seeing him was enough to change her whole life, you see, and they felt this way about it. And uh, I remember at the, pick, the picking of extras for that sort of thing, there was great jealousy about it. And then some of them were brought to England, and that created further dissension in it. But uh, generally speaking, it was a big experience for the town. The real thing arrived in Mullingar, and of course it was a sellout for obvious reasons because every fella in the crowd scene thought he was going to see himself, you know, and nobody ever saw anybody because uh, they were all, all long distance shots anyway. But it was good crack.
I suppose. It's December 1941 in Casablanca. What time is it in New York? My watch stopped. I bet they're asleep in New York. I bet they're asleep all over America. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. How's that your plane? Oh, just a little something of my own. Well, stop it. You know what I want to hear. No, don't. You played it for her, you play it for me. Well, I don't think I can remember. If she can stand it, I can. Play it. I want to be a cowboy in the good old movies, Cucamonga. I'm on my way. Many may have been disappointed at their very short or non-existent appearances in Captain Boycott. However, the way to overcome this problem of not getting others to put you up on the silver screen is to put yourself up, and this was done through the making of Our Town. It wasn't that long after the war, mm. and it had been decided in Mullingar to hold a, a fortnight's civic festival. The meeting was held in the council chamber of the county hall. Various people were invited to go, and I went. Uh, I, I was late coming to the meeting, as it so happened, but... I just heard my name being mentioned as uh, Tom Arlen do a film, you see. And I said, excuse me, what film? <laughs> so they said, ah, well, do you see, uh, people in Mullingar would never have seen themselves on a cinema screen. And uh, you could get a camera somewhere and go around and photograph them. Now, I, and then we'd show them on a cinema screen in a tent or something, and uh, they'd come in and see themselves, you see. So I, I said, yes, well, what kind of a budget? Oh, there's five pounds, he said, five pounds. So nobody had a, uh, a camera that I could find in the whole of the town. Uh, but somebody told me that Father Felix, who was the guardian in Multifarland, that they had a camera out there. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I went out and asked Father Felix, and he showed me how to, how to use it. We had one great man in the town here, was Arthur Cloney. And we got the idea of making the film that we ought to have a soundtrack with it, because... Now, there was no such thing as 16 mil uh, film with, with soundtrack. Yeah. So, having figured it out, Arthur uh, read on the paper a uh, demonstration of the Gresham Hotel of the very latest gadget, and it was called uh, a Chicago Webster wire recorder, magnetic wire. Now, there was only one in the country, we found out uh, uh, afterwards, there was only the one. Uh, we, he tracked down, by going to the Gresham Hotel, he managed to track down who was the agent in Dublin, and it was somebody in Leeson Street. Uh, he went up to see this man, and when he was ushered into the office, there it was sitting on the table, and he said, could we borrow that? And the man says, what do you want it for? We want to make a film and a soundtrack. Great, he says, take it. Uh, no, it's a very flimsy thing. The wire broke very easily, so we found that if we recorded some kind of a soundtrack, uh, that um, well, the tape could break. Mm. So uh, Piggott's at that time had a studio, where if you won prizes in the festival or if you were a good singer, you could go and have it, the novelty of a record being made in studio conditions. Yeah. So I uh, went up there and found, yeah, they'd make some records. They could do the records off the tapes. Then uh, uh, filming around the town then became very uh, funny. Uh, we, For example, we filmed the fire brigade. Now, wasn't to know that something could be very funny. You see, the, the fire brigade... I, I asked the driver of the fire brigade, 
We're the, by the way, the county hall was in theory on fire, but we got smoke uh, 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 bombs, if you like, in the in the barracks and set them off with county council's permission, of course, in the council chamber, and it sent billows of smoke out through the windows. I asked the driver. I said, "Would you stop now?" I said, "In front of that uh, ESB pole." in front of a pub in Mount Street, opposite the courthouse. And I was inside the courthouse, up on a barrel, you see, uh, ready to film this, this opus. He says, look, whatever you want, it'll be going to be done. If you want to stop at that pole, I stop at that pole. So the fire engine went up to the top of Mount Street, and it travelled down Mount Street at 60 miles an hour. And he came to a sudden stop outside the pole, and all the firemen shot off it, you see. And although it was a laugh at the time, we were raging, you see. And we had to had to do it again and make him go a little bit slower. We'd only one camera, of course, and there was the Jim Can out of Welchestown. <laughs> and I got the idea uh, and discussed it with Arthur Cloney, who was very, very good at, at all this kind of thing. You see, I said, Arthur, could, could we film one race and another race and another race from different places? And Arthur says, great idea. And he says, who's to know the difference? And I said, who's to know the difference? So we photographed the start of one race didn't take any notice of who was racing, uh, went out the field and photographed another race coming through through a hedge, and then another race coming through an open space, yeah. and another race co- going into the finishing. And that would make up uh, a very nice uh, race picture, because, you know, it was film, we thought, far enough away uh, for it to all look like the one race. But we hadn't read the card very carefully because the first race, I think, was a ladies' race and the last race was for cart horses. And the horses were getting bigger and bigger as the race was going, as the race was going on. <laughs> but but uh, I don't think anybody really cared. It was, it was all good for a laugh. The editing of the film was done on a kitchen chair and a roll of tickets. And we pulled out every piece of film and at the beginning of it, we just marked what it was on the ticket and fixed it with a clip and pulled it through the through the, 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 the back of the chair. And uh, then uh, got a splicing machine and put it together. And we found that we actually had a film and it, it was, it, there was uh, sense to it, you know? The film was a huge success, far bigger success than we... Uh, like it went down so terribly well. Uh, this was way beyond our expectations altogether. The sound uh, well. The sound and all. The sound was perfect. Oh, the sound was perfect. There were big blank patches on the screen for a few seconds, but nobody knew what they were. A dead silence, you know. Uh, blank film. Just black film. The screen went black. It didn't mm. go white. And um, uh, uh, that just gave time to turn the record over and put the needle. Now, if you missed. The, the the spot for the needle, like, you know, but then it was out of synchronisation for the next three minutes until you were turning over again. But uh, we had a box of uh, records. Now, those records existed for a big number of years and then disappeared, oh. and I, I just don't know where they are. Uh, the, the the We now wanted to recover uh, in in the short time that we were shown the film, you see, we had an idea, we'll have to recover the, the, the money that we overspent, you see. Uh, because at this stage we probably had spent twenty pounds, you know, maybe twenty-two pounds for all I know. And uh, at that time, uh, fourpence admission uh, was untaxed. But if you were over fourpence, then there was tax of a farthing. And if it was so much, it was a tax of penny farthing, a penny halfpenny, or something like that. Um, that's government tax. So to avoid paying the tax, uh, we just charged fourpence. But we knew we wouldn't for the small seating, relatively small seating accommodation in the council chamber. We thought 
uh, we'd think of something else. So what we thought of was, we charged fourpence to get in and we charged sixpence to get out. And that meant that we got tenpence. And it worked extremely well. <laughs> Everybody paid up their sixpence. And other peop- people went out and paid fourpence again to come in, to come back in <laughs> and see themselves, <laughs> to see our town. So it more than, uh, it made a lot of money. It, yeah. it did. It made, uh, it made what it we would call a lot of money now. Yeah. It made not a lot of money in modern terms. Yeah. But it more than, more than, yeah. than paid its way. Uh, the funny thing about it was that, uh, it gave rise to a discussion in Dáil Airden about the possibilities of uh, an Irish film industry. This film in Mullingar that had shown industry and people at work and play and was a huge success and all like that. During the 1940s and 50s, cinema went through its boom period. In 1945 in Mullingar, the Hibernian cinema was built at the cost of £25,000 and a staff of over 20, all in uniform, fitted in with the formality of going to the pictures. There were many related magazines which allowed the moviegoer to keep in touch with Hollywood. For example, Screen Magazine, Price, Threepence, Did You Know section. Bing Crosby is an Ireland Catholic, educated by the Jesuits. James Cagney throws a St. Patrick's Day party each year and Spencer Tracy drops in. Or even the advertising pushed the screen image, even when it seemed impossible. Swing high, swing low, no threads can go. They're miners' liquid stockings. Neither ladders nor coupons will worry you when you wear miners' liquid stockings. Just smooth on and you will have a rich, undetectable real silk effect. You can even draw in seams or heels with miners' seam silk stick. It, at the time it was, the cinema business was booming in the, in the 40s. And I made personally a lot of money out of it. We used, to, we used to employ three men, get back the queues, and sometimes one of the bosses might be down, he'd help. But the queues were very big, they'd be right down along to queues. It was the only sort of uh, window to the world that was available to anybody in Mullingar. You could see the Colorado Canyon for the first time. Or you, you can see skyscrapers, the Manhattan skyline. I remember that was a favourite one and a source of comment to people when they would see it. And, and there was another point about it that that every family had two or three people over there. In America? And for the, in, yes, and for the first time, and in Australia, and for the first time they were having a look at the place where their own families had emigrated to. And that was... a. It was an extraordinary bridging of something which couldn't have been bridged otherwise. The the cinemas at that time were all the the, the pre-marital courses of the country were done in the cinemas. There's no doubt at all about that, and they were notorious for it. And uh, during school days, there would be inquisitions about that. Going to the cinema was no harm, but but going to the cinema to meet your girlfriend was something else, and it took their took the students' mind off studies. Naturally, it was a, a sort of a, a perfectly uh, reliable sort of guide to what was going on, if you like. But nevertheless, uh, 
the recognition of the thing was there that the cinema was a den at, at matinee times where boys would be better off out of and young and girls too mm. but on the other hand you see it was a place where people did their whole courtship with girls. You brought to the pictures every night with her. Did you but hear it saying, I see her bringing her to the pictures. That meant he was going to marry her. And straight <laughs> away, uh, it was identified as that. Later, it became that that, that that sort of identification swung over to the dance halls. Didn't agree with the Neckers a lot, if that matters, yes. But there'd be people come and ask you not to put them beside Neckers. That's what they call them. Neckers. Neckers. <coughs> oh, very respectable people, a man and his wife, you know, they wouldn't like to feel, you know, out of it, I suppose. But that doesn't go on as much, but it did go on there. Don't be talking to me. You want to stick sometimes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I got into trouble too, I did. Someone, an army fellow, he was necking with his girl, his wife after, and, oh, God almighty, he came out, he was very abusive. I don't think it used to be allowed to a certain extent in any cinema. Then out of the blue, there was an apparition in Mullingar. Yeah. And uh, about three miles outside Mullingar, in a, an uh, estate owned by some English people. And um, two young girls were on the fields playing one day, and they saw this apparition. And of course, they went home and told their mothers. The mothers went up to the parish priest and told the parish priest about it. And the word got round, Mullingar. And then the next thing it travelled abroad. Down to Mayo, Galway, you name it. It got there. <laughs> it got there and then the busloads started to arrive. And of course, the cinema taking strapped to nothing. In, in, uh, in 19, what was it? It was 1946, I think it was. But. Um, I, he, he rang up one night and there was about ten people in the cinema and I reported to him the takings and he swore not repeatable on the phone what's happening down there. So say there's an apparition outside the town here, say the whole town has, has gone. Why don't you arrange to have the apparition in the cinema? I said, we might do something about that too, he said. So I said to him, so uh, uh, after a week and every he calmed down when he began to, to realise what was happening. He began to come down and get, got very enthusiastic and he was talking very nicely. One night uh, he came on and he said, I wonder would he see something if he came down? And he was trying to encourage the whole thing because, you see, he thought it would become another Lourdes and, of course, they were, on a, they were on a winner then, you see. The apparition went on for something about in the neighbourhood about two months until the 15th of August. And you never got the audience back into the cinema during it? Never got, no. Got nobody in the cinema. Absolutely, we were lying idle there with a full staff for two weeks, yeah. for um, two, months. two months, until the Bishop of Mead on the altar announced that the thing was a fake. We got the crowds back to the cinema by a bit of showmanship. We uh, hired Sam Bernadette, Sam Bernadette, which everybody knows about, the story of Lourdes. And uh, of course the crowd, people, our audience were full of religion at this stage, and uh, they flocked back to Sunday to see the song of Bernadette and a proper apparition. Sin of variety came in. A tax was introduced in the in the late 40s uh, that all cinemas had to be, be taxed. But then there was a, a discovery that uh, if you had 60% stage show and 40% film, you weren't liable for tax. And, of course, local artists and local talent 
was 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 brought onto the stage. Now, we we did a fairly legitimate job on it, but there were places now not too far away in Motor. They they used to call in whistlers off the street, you know, and and of course the excise man whom I knew very well, Dwyer, used to come come to me foaming. He'd be after sitting for for three or four hours looking at a fella p- playing a tin whistle or something, and all this is the dodge that was going on, so as to get the the cheaper. But we had fairly legitimate shows at that time, and I tell you, uh, well known characters, well known in Ireland actually a lad called Charlie Burton Charlie was with Joe Lynch the famous Joe Lynch is in Glen Row now mm. and they had a, a particular uh, successful uh, radio show at the time now Charlie came down here to, to help operations and he lived here and he was with me a lot at the time and uh, he operated a lot of this and and, and, and uh, directed all this this variety business you know if the local society were putting on their show during Lent the cinema would wait until they had confirmation of the Choral Society date. This is what they were accused of now. And then they would put on something during Lent, you see. The cinema would come up with the King of Kings, the Ten Commandments, the Sign of the Cross, and straight away a guilt complex sort of came to the people, you see. But not in the Choral Society. They would become infuriated by this and become quite agnostic, you see. and, And you can imagine... When Annie Get Your Gun would be going on during Lent, the high-kicking women in their flimsy drawers down the county hall stage, playing against the Ten Commandments in the cinema, it was a com- complete reversal of the whole culture of the country. <laughs> but a peculiar thing about most of the films and different companies, uh, such as MGM, Radio, uh, and, and, RKO, and, uh, RKO yeah, Radio and, and uh, 20th Century Fox, they had all their own uh, individual characters. I can stay off my mind, I'm Clark, Gable and Robert Taylor and and, and uh, Spencer Tracy and Mickey Rooney they were all MGM characters and then you had the like of of, of uh, James Cagney and Humphrey Bogart they were all Warner Brothers you'd know the particular company yeah. an extraordinary thing about all all the, the 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 bit parts and all the supporting casts were nearly always the same. Mm. Uh, you know, you would see a, a, a gangster film, and they'd be nearly always the same crooks uh, in, in in different films. And uh, you'd smile sometimes because you see some of them a copper in in, in uh, he'd be a, a first class killer in one, and he'd be a copper in another. Yeah. You know, and the contrast used to, you know, it come fairly recent. You'd see the two showings within a short period, and you'd be you'd be smiling to think that he was a copper in one film and he was a, yeah, yeah, a gangster. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. Then there was another. Uh, <laughs> Very amusing incidents, if you want to know any about the cinema, is that uh, there's a local place uh, here called Springfield, you see, and of course there's also the famous Springfield in Ohio, in England, or in uh, America. Now that that uh, used to come up on the, in the picture from time to time. We're going to Springfield, you see, a guy had seen in the, in the film, and of course all the board, the gods down the front, were a huge cheer, you see, when they'd hear anything that'd be spicy to themselves, you know, and. Uh, yeah, the, the, uh, there was kind of audience participation, you know. Yeah. And uh, another thing that used to used to uh, I used to be amused and, and and I used to enjoy immensely is I'd go up the centre aisle and I'd walk back down when there'd be a sad film on, you see, and you'd see them all in tears and handkerchiefs out and everything. And then when you'd see a horror, the horror film Dracula or something, so half of them would be down behind the seats and they're looking up with one eye, you know. The reactions of the audience and the way they accepted it was was, was really amusing, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, I left it. I left the business in 1952. I, I appreciated the fact that I was connected with it, and it's a great memory. 
but uh, I, I, I was exploited. I was exploited. I feel you know. You see, they get the cheaper version of the film. Another thing I should have mentioned to you was that the cheaper version of the film, a, a cowboy and a supporting uh, film uh, of the second-rate variety, was always shown on a Sunday night because you were absolutely certain you were going to have more than you, you could fill in. You know, and uh, they, they, they exploited that situation. The, it was really surprising the influence, mm. the cultural influence that the cinema had yeah. on people. It was, it was the only evening entertainment that they had. But the, the giant who wasn't uh, sort of governed was the, was the television. Mm. And when he took over, there was, it had a devastating effect on the cinema. When, when were you last at the cinema? Well, must be 20, 25 years, Lawrence of Arabia. I, I love films, but I wouldn't go to the cinema now unless it was, you know, a very special film. Yeah. And I think what with television now today, I think one cinema may be enough. I wouldn't have an ambition to open the cinema again. Now, I just ask you, when were you last at the cinema? Well, that's something that I never go to. But I can't look at television or I fall asleep. Mm. Oh, yes, here I go. Well, if you were 21 now again, would you invest in the cinema? No, no way. The last chapter of Mullingar cinema history is still being written. The town now only has one cinema, the Hibernian, which is run by Warden Anderson, who run a chain of major cinemas in Dublin, and others throughout the country. The staff numbers in the Hibernian have dwindled, and they no longer wear the uniforms that were once associated with the whole formality of going to the cinema. In fact, they rarely have problems with holding back queues anymore. All in all, the cinema has the same name, but it is no longer the same place. Television broke the habit of going to the pictures, and many cinemas closed in the late 60s and early 70s. Odeon Ireland reported a 15% drop in audiences up through the 70s. But now in the 80s, we're seeing the re-establishment of a new type of cinema, one which is aimed at a young audience aged between 15 and 30. This new audience go for cult films, mainstream blockbusters, the sort of films they won't catch on TV. There is no longer the situation of a whole community going to a film when it arrives in town. The idea of a whole family going to the cinema has also disappeared. Leo Ward now talks of turning the last cinema in Mullingar into three smaller ones. He hopes in the future to see cinemas being computerised. You buy your ticket at a vending machine. It allows you pass through an automatic gate. You go in and sit on a plastic seat and the computer rolls the film. This is what lies ahead for the next generation. Of course, it'll be cheaper, but I just wonder, 
Did we lose something along the way? The young people suffer most, I think. The young people started something new. That was the whole life they knew. And they had a feeling that if you want to be entertained, the cinema is the place. Thank you.